Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Wednesday, April 26th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, researchers and advocates draw a line between expanding broadband services and health care savings. Then a former Greenville mayor highlights the effects of climate change on black communities. Plus, this week's History is Lunch examines the slow calculating lynching of Clyde Kennard. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. April is National Minority Health Month. Health advocacy leaders are coming together to raise awareness about gaps in rural telehealth across Mississippi and other southern states. Telemedicine grew rapidly throughout the early stages of the pandemic, but experts say it also highlighted major gaps in Internet access. Olita Garrett Fitzgerald is the state and regional lead for Southern Rural Black Women's Institute. She says Internet access and telemedicine need to be expanded because hospitals in the Delta continue to reduce operations. In Mississippi, where we're doing work, we just had the only NICU unit closed uh, in the Mississippi Delta. Uh, So we recognize through COVID and through our work in the region that telehealth is really important uh, to accessing healthcare in rural isolated communities. So as we joined uh, forces with Community Broadband's Institute for Local Self-Reliance, we decided to shift a bit from education focus to a focus on access to healthcare. And thus this report jointly uh, done with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance and the Southern Rural Black Women's Initiative. This report lays out savings that can be had from expansion of telehealth if we have quality and accessible and affordable uh, broadband. Uh, So we are, this report joins in other organizing activities. Uh, We focused on uh, the counties in Georgia that are there that you have in your report, uh, primarily because we were looking at uh, Mitchell, the Mitchell Electric Membership Co-ops service area in the as as we were rolling out our work in Southwest Georgia. So I will stop there. Um, 
and turn it over to Rye and Chris um, to talk about the report's findings and and why we. Olita Garrett Fitzgerald with the Southern Rural Black Women's Institute was one of several presenters on a virtual discussion about a new report. It examines how expansion of telemedicine could save Mississippi more than $1 million a year. Dr. Sandra Reed, an obstetrician and gynecologist at Emory Healthcare in Georgia, says telemedicine can also help patients avoid trips to the emergency room. As a practicing physician, um, I do see telehealth patients. Um, in the past, prior to COVID, telehealth required that the patient be in facility. But during the COVID pandemic, those requirements by HHS were lifted so that the patient, as long as they had access to video and audio, could be seen uh, virtually by their uh, physicians. Uh, not only does this help with the cost of health care in that these patients have to travel sometimes long distances in order for rural patients to be uh, referred to me. There's a, at least a three-hour drive. Uh, transportation can be an issue for these patients and even setting up transportation, uh, missing their rides, appointments get uh, have to be rescheduled or canceled. As a physician at Emory, I do take care of patients in Tifton, Georgia, in other rural communities. But important to my past is that prior to about seven years ago, I practiced 25 years in uh, Thomasville, Georgia. And over, we have seen over the last 20 years, many, many uh, labor and delivery units close in the state of Georgia. We also know that maternal mortality rate is the one of the highest in uh, the three states that have been studied. Having that opportunity to do these virtual visits would improve health care. It would decrease potentially uh, maternal uh, mortality. These patients, a lot of times, do not have the money to make the transportation to get to a facility so that they can be seen. Having the capability of doing telehealth in their homes uh, is an important part of this, and uh, we can potentially uh, diagnose problems that the patient needs uh, immediate transfer for to a higher level of care if indeed they even have uh, health care in their county. So this is indeed an important topic. Having access, and I have had patients that I have not been able to see on, to see on telehealth because uh, lack of access to internet services. Uh, when that happens, these appointments have to be rescheduled. Um, the patient has to be set up transportation, or we have to refer to a, a facility closer to them so that they can at least make their visits. In a way, having the COVID pandemic escalated the speed with which we converted to telehealth, and I am so glad to see this report to pull the numbers together so that we can take this to our legislators and argue our case to continue telehealth. Uh, that does benefit the patient. It does benefit the cost savings for health care, uh, especially at a time when pri prices and, and health care is escalating in uh, expense. And this is an opportunity for us to not only give better access to patients, but also save 
on uh, the funding, which will allow those funds to be transferred for other important programs in the healthcare system. Dr. Sandra Reed is with Emory Healthcare in Georgia, helping to share a new report on the cost and life-saving uses of telehealth in rural areas. Coming up, a former Greenville mayor highlights the effects of climate change on Black communities. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing the doorknob or fixing a leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. Join us each week for Everyday Tech on MPB Think Radio. We have an IT expert, a computer repair ace, and we troubleshoot your problems on the phones as well. Everyday Tech, Wednesdays at 10 on MPB Think Radio. Download the podcast now or listen on YouTube on the MPB Think Radio channel. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Greenville native Heather McTeer-Tony didn't consider herself an environmentalist when she became mayor of the Mississippi Delta town in 2004. But when she had to begin work to manage wastewater and protect local water supplies, she began to prioritize environmental issues. Tony would later go on to serve as a regional administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency during the Obama administration. Her new book called Before the Streetlights Come On examines the climate crisis from the lens of the nation's black communities. She shares more on her journey toward environmentalism and how it intersects with the social justice movement. This is an issue that has been prevalent not only uh, in the black community but around the world. And what I found through my work both as a mayor in in Greenville, Mississippi, and then later working for the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, was that we experience climate change in so many ways, but we never talk about it. Or there's stereotypes around how black communities and and, uh, minority communities uh, don't engage in climate change. So I I saw these holes of... um, where we needed to show up in solutions. And I wrote about all of the ways that the black community is currently engaging in climate change solutions and how we can do more of that. Can you give us an example or two of what you mean? You know, it's funny. um, When I was um, mayor, I would oftentimes work to do things like bring jobs to the community. Infrastructure was a huge issue in our community. And Lisa Jackson, who was the first African-American administrator for the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, she made Greenville, Mississippi, one of her first stops. And we were talking about wastewater and sewer, and she pulled me to the side and said, you know, this is environmental justice work. And I said, absolutely not. I'm not an environmentalist. And she said, no, actually, it really is. The way in which communities uh, have to deal with failing infrastructure is so often connected to how we're experiencing extreme weather, how we are uh, managing resiliency and sustainability for our communities, especially coming from a a very agrarian place like the Mississippi Delta. And so, you know, when I began to look around and really see uh, how our community was not only tackling these issues, but surviving and thriving in these spaces. Uh, so often in, in black communities, you know, we talk about 
um, the ways that we are already recycling and we reuse things, the the, the jokes that uh, are prevalent in just about everybody's household of how we know what a crown roll bag is used for is not always for crown roll. It could be to keep um, trinkets in. Uh, those are the types of ways that um, we see these reuse and recycling places come up, but it's not connected to how we protect the environment. So I love uh, digging into those stories and talking about uh, ways that we see solutions and that they're cross-cultural. They're really ways that we can uh, showcase climate action as being positive and hopeful uh, for years to come. With the title, what were you thinking when you titled the book, Before the Streetlights Come On, Black America's Urgent Call for Climate Solutions? Are Black people calling for climate solutions by and large? Since the beginning, always have uh, communities of color and Black communities uh, strive to just be able to breathe clean air. And, and those calls for equity and justice in every aspect of the social justice movement has had a foundation in climate and environment, even when it's not at the forefront. So often climate and environmental issues are siloed and separated from things like voting rights or police brutality or health care. But in reality, it's an underlier for all of those things. And so when I think of before the streetlights come on, growing up for me and for so many people I know, that was an urgent call to action. You know, you had to be in the house before those streetlights come on. And you could tell, you know, when they were about to come on. But before the streetlights come on, you had to finish all of your play. You had to put all your, your bikes, the toys. If you had those, you had to put it up. And we were our brother's keeper. One person had to be in the house. Everybody had to be in the house. And I found that that resonated through so many different communities across the country that the call to action of climate change is akin to we've got to hurry up and do something before we are in the dark, before we are in a space where we have to be inside and we are stuck cleaning up because we didn't do what we were supposed to do. And it's the same way that we resonate with so many parts of the social justice movement right now. And there are clear connections between climate change and how black communities are experiencing social and environmental injustice. One of the examples I give in the book is in a chapter that I wrote uh, entitled uh, Climate Change is an Accomplice to the Murders of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, um, and Breonna Taylor. And the um, premise is that during the murder of George Floyd, there were temperatures taken of the community, and it was found that the asphalt that his face was placed against was about 10 degrees warmer than that of a neighboring community. And it really justified and solidified the problems with urban heat islands, which we find more often than not in vulnerable populations and in black communities. The idea that when you're surrounded in a space that doesn't have any green space, trees or grass, it's hotter. And hot, and heat is one of the agitators for violence. So it's not just an agitator for police violence, but child abuse and domestic violence. And so these are things that we can help 
not only uh, lessen in communities, but it's just the awareness of this is part of the problem of what we are experiencing and being able to not only vocalize that, but share it as here's a way we can create solutions as well by solving these problems. We appreciate your time, really, in, in sharing your thoughts. Thanks so much. Heather McTier-Tony is the former mayor of Greenville and author of Before the Streetlights Come On. Coming up, this week's History is Lunch examines the slow, calculated lynching of Clyde Kennard. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Years before James Meredith became the first black student at the University of Mississippi, Clyde Kennard tried to desegregate Mississippi Southern College, now called the University of Southern Mississippi. The Korean War veteran was rejected. His second application drew the wrath of the governor, the Mississippi State Sovereignty Commission, and others determined to keep him out. A slow, calculated lynching tells the story of Clyde Kennard. That's the subject of today's History is Lunch. Arthur and presenter Devery Anderson shares more with our Michael Guidry. Clyde Kennard was a uh, military veteran, served in the post-war occupation uh, after World War II in Germany, and then re-enlisted later and served as a paratrooper in Korea. When he came home and was discharged, he began attending the University of Chicago, lived with his sister up there uh, for a couple of years, but he was called home because his father, stepfather had a stroke and his mother needed his help in running the family farm. So he returned to Mississippi and returned to Hattiesburg. And at that point, he wanted to continue going to school, but he couldn't leave town. And so he tried to get into the uh, what was then Mississippi Southern College. Today, it's the University of Southern Mississippi in Hattiesburg. And that's when his troubles began. And um, you kind of describe uh, that, that, that trouble as uh, kind of a subterfuge against uh, against his enrollment. But but it went far beyond keeping Kennard out of school what happened um, with this resistance and and how, as you call it in the book, how did it become this slow, calculated lynching? Well, as a black student wanting to attend this university, in the post-Brown era, uh, Mississippi and most of the South wasn't about to integrate yet. And so to avoid a lawsuit, they had to come up with other reasons for him not to get in. When he first applied in 1955, uh, they told him there were um, problems with his application. He didn't fill it out right. He didn't have the correct uh, letters of reference, things like that. And so he tried again, and then they tried you know, to find other reasons to keep him out. Eventually, um, when he started reapplying in 1958, 
Governor Coleman uh, assigned the fairly newly formed Sovereignty Commission to investigate him. Their aim was to dig up dirt and to find some reason to keep him out. And they spent a few weeks investigating him and couldn't come up with anything. And so they kept having to uh, use other means to get him out, to keep him out. And finally, in September 1959, when the university uh, officially gave him a letter of rejection, he was on the campus to receive that letter. And when he left the office of the college president and went out to his car, uh, he was arrested by two constables who said that they had been following him and looking for him because he had been driving recklessly uh, from his home to the campus. And they caught up with him, found his car on campus. Well, they took him to jail. And after he went to jail, they told him that they found five uh, bottles of hard liquor in his car the Sovereignty Commission, when you read their internal memos to each other, uh, from the investigator to the director and others, everybody knew that this liquor had been planted in his car. And he didn't serve any time for that one because he appealed it. Uh, he began working with the NAACP at that point to try to get some legal help with this uh, conviction. But uh, publicly, he was threatening a lawsuit to get into the university. So they framed him a second time, a year later, this time uh, for theft as an accessory to theft. During that time he was in prison, he, uh, and he'd already had signs of getting sick, uh, developing uh, cancer. He, he began complaining of uh, pains in his abdomen and and he got worse and worse. Finally, he was commuted his sentence. The governor, Barnett, did under pressure. Uh, and then Clyde died about six months later. It was too late to save him. And so I call it a slow calculated lynching because the state, you know, from the governor, from the college uh, president, to the sovereignty commission, to the local police, the DA, everybody was determined to get him out of the picture. They took his life from him. Uh, it wasn't vigilantes in this case. It was state officials who just took his life away. I mean, they took his dreams away at first, and in doing so, took his life away. That's where the title uh, to the book comes in. It's a fascinating story, and, and told by a University of Utah student who um, has written books on Emmett Till and, and now Clyde Kennard, but also um, uh, quite a collection related to the Mormons and the West, uh, and so I guess my what I'd like to what I'm curious about uh, is is how do, how does all that intersect? How does someone from there who has spent so much time researching the history of of, of the Mormons out west uh, come to this story uh, and and devote the time and, and the research and the energy to to tell it? I'd always had a, an interest in uh, American social history and social movements. I was becoming more interested in racial issues, and I, especially within the Mormon Church, and and that I was researching that, and uh, right around the time that Medgar Evers' killer was convicted, thirty years after he had murdered Medgar Evers, and I was really fascinated. That kind of caused me to then start looking at the African-American experience more generally in the United States. And I discovered Emmett Till about six months after that. And when I did, 
it just grabbed me in such a way that it wouldn't let me go. And so, so that was my first uh, book on African American experience, or with the Emmett Till case, and that uh, the the passion I had for that kind of research and writing, and to spend time in Mississippi. Uh, was just so strong that I knew I, I had at least one more book in me, but I I couldn't find really a topic that was exciting me until I uh, read about Clyde Kennard in the book Local People by John Dittmer, and there were just a few pages devoted to it. But when I read those pages in 2017, I, I got that same passion that I did when I discovered Emmett Till, and it grabbed me in the same way, and I knew it was going to be my next book. And, so I worked on it from that day forward uh, until it, I turned the manuscript in. So um, that passion was there, and it developed because of my interest in the black experience in Mormonism, and it just branched out from there. And you'll be sharing more about the story of, of Clyde Kennard uh, today at History is launched at the two Mississippi museums at noon. Uh, the book is A Slow Calculated Lynching, the story of Clyde Kennard. Uh, and we've been speaking, <clears throat> excuse me, we've been speaking with Devery Anderson, the author, researcher, and presenter uh, today. Thank you so much for taking some time to, to speak with us and, and share the journey you went on to tell Clyde Kennard's story. Well, thank you for having me. It's, uh, it's an honor to share it. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.